Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 838, interview number one with Peter Lavenda, the author of The Hitler Legacy. This is being recorded on March 8th of the year 2015. And it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce to our audience Peter Lavenda, last name L-E-V as in Victor E-N-D-A, the author of, among other titles, Unholy Alliance that we have dealt with before, and the very important recent title, The Hitler Legacy, subtitled The Nazi Cult in Diaspora, How It Was Organized, How It Was Funded, and Why It Remains a Threat to Global Security in the Age of Terrorism. This book was published in hardcover by IBIS Publishers. Peter, welcome to our airwaves. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, your book, uh, The Hitler Legacy, is something that I think for newer listeners will open their eyes to some very important uh, historical and political dynamics that are affecting their lives in a very profound way, although they might not fully understand that. And for veteran listeners, I think this book is going to serve both as reinforcement for arguments that they have encountered in years past and also a very compact and yet detailed and articulate uh, document to illustrate many of the things that I have been working to uh, point out over the years. Uh, this book gets the Dave Emery five-star rating, and I think there is nothing better that listeners could do to uh, enhance their understanding of the arguments that I've been advancing for these years than to go out and get this book, read it, and encourage others to do the same thing. And I, by the way, don't get any financial uh, reinforcement whatsoever from the book. Uh, Peter, uh, I'd like to begin by having you read a section, an excerpt from page 14 of the Hitler Legacy that will serve as something of an encapsulation of the book and a point of entry into the arguments that we're going to be presenting in this interview and in interviews to come. Uh, on page 14, you have some interesting things to say about the Hitler legacy and things that might be much more familiar to contemporary and younger listeners. Very well. I have seen documentation that proves beyond any doubt that networks existed after the war to assist Nazi war criminals in their escape and survival, and that these networks were far more pervasive than even the fantasies of Frederick Forsyth and Ira Levin would have us believe. More to the point, the evidence that there existed, and still exists, a strong relationship between underground Nazi organizations and underground Islamist organizations is strong, incontrovertible, and deeply troubling. The number of Nazis who converted to Islam after the war is astounding. The number of Americans who participated in the Nazi underground is even more astounding. When we discuss the rise of what the press calls jihadism or Islamist fundamentalism, or Islamist terror cells, we have to put these terms and what they represent into context. This is the Hitler legacy. From terror bombings in Europe in the 1960s and 1970s, 
to assassinations of political leaders around the world, to drug running and arms smuggling, to Operation Condor, and all the way to the events of September 11, 2001. What we have to confront is the possibility that our governments and our intelligence agencies have become sorcerers' apprentices. Like the Disney movie, our Mickey Mouse, savants and spies have clumsily summoned forces beyond their control. What began as an effort to contain the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China has become the template for a campaign of global terrorism directed at us. This is that story. And again, for newer listeners, they may be wondering, well, what, a Nazi underground? How does this affect Islamic terrorism and jihadism and uh, other things that uh, people are more accustomed to seeing represented in the daily news? And your analysis of how this concatenation came to be begins with events that took place uh, during the First World War, or in some cases a little bit before. In fact, in uh, a couple of places in your book, you actually observe that in many ways we are still fighting the First World War. And uh, the first section of your book is called Origins of 21st Century Conflict. And I'd like to uh, begin our discussion by having you relate for us things that were taking place during the Second World War or in the immediate aftermath of the war that helped to shape the development of the Nazi diaspora, its collaboration with American elites, and the genesis of uh, some of the things like jihadism and Islamist terror cells and how they dovetail with other things that uh, people generally don't, do not associate with them. Uh, what was taking place in Europe? I'd like you to relate for us what was taking place in Europe and Germany at the end of the First World War. Well, it's as I as I have mentioned, and as you as you cited, I believe we're still fighting the First World War, and this is a very important fact to understand that all of the, the world's current problems can be traced directly back to a series of mistakes that were made at that time. In 1917, you had the Russian Revolution begin. You had a group of the revolutionaries, Bolsheviks and others, who wanted to put into effect the Marxist ideal of a workers' paradise, of a government that would be run by the workers and the peasants, people who would own the means of production and take it away from an oligarchy, whether it was the monarchy, uh, corporatism, or whatever. Uh, they wanted to take the power back from these special interests, let's say, the government and corporations that were in bed with the government, the banking institutions, whatever. So you had a revolution. And this revolution, this overthrow of the czarist monarchy sent shockwaves around the world uh, because it happened right in the middle of the First World War. The war that was being fought by Germany and Turkey uh, and its allies against the rest of the world was in a major stalemate at around 1917. And suddenly Russia fell out of the entire program. Suddenly the Russians decided they didn't want to be in this war any longer. This was a major blow to the whole world. No one was expecting this. No one was anticipating this. So what you had was the success of an ideological revolution. This wasn't just like an American-style revolution where we wanted to get rid of the colonial powers. In Russia, they were not getting rid of colonial powers per se. What they were doing was fighting an ideological war, and the ideology was communism. This was seen as something that was pernicious. It was atheistic. It was uh, setting itself up against all of the institutions that the West had come to know and love and embrace, whether it was the, the church, the state, 
corporations, banks, whatever, this revolution seemed to be against all of it. So it made everyone extremely nervous. As the German soldiers were returning from the Russian front, they were being told that they should go back to Germany and overthrow the German government, that they should uh, create essentially a socialist workers' paradise in Germany. So this is this was actually in the, in the process of taking place. By 1918 and 1919, you had socialist governments that were setting up in Berlin, that were setting up in Munich, all across Germany. There was this complete dissatisfaction with World War I, with what had gone on, and so you had a number of people who felt, a number of institutions that felt Germany would be better off and Europe would be better off if it had gone as communist as Russia and as the newly born Soviet Union. So you had a, a tremendous ideological conflict, uh, which seemed like a very intellectual exercise, but the real effect of it was destruction of the superstructure, or the fundamental basics, really, of what society was considered to be. So this was a, this was a blow, uh, and it was felt in the United States. It was felt everywhere, and the Germans who resisted it, the Germans who fought against the socialist-communist experiment in Germany, were nationalists. They were, quote-unquote, fascists. These were nationalist leaders who did not want to be part of an international organization, an international political movement. Uh, they didn't want to lose their hegemony. They didn't want to lose their identity to uh, a workers' revolution uh, that would be worldwide. So there was a pushback from the right wing. It was a very definite, very strong pushback. And in 1918 and in 1919, you had outbreaks of war, uh, civil war throughout Germany. And in Munich, uh, this particular struggle was being led by a very bizarre little organization called the Tula Gesellschaft, which was an esoteric German organization that kind of fused yoga, runic studies, um, occult studies, theosophy, all of this all wrapped together in a kind of nationalist flag. And these people were dead set against a communist takeover. They were being led by some uh, nobility, uh, German nobility uh, and royalty. And this, this uh, constant battle between them and the, the, the Soviets, the new uh, German-style communists, uh, exploded. When uh, seven members of the Tula Gesellschaft were led up against a wall and shot, which included some German nobility, and uh, there was a tremendous pushback by the Tula Gesellschaft, which raised forces which consolidated in the creation of something called the Freikorps, which was the free uh, army that was going to fight the Soviets. These were former German army officers and soldiers wearing swastikas for the very first time on their helmets as a symbol of the German race, the German people that was going to fight against this internationalist, quote-unquote, Jewish conspiracy of socialism and communism. So this was a very heady atmosphere. This is the atmosphere in which Hitler uh, came to maturity, you might say. He was... Um, uh, investigating the Tula Gesellschaft. He was investigating the German nationalist uh, uh, movement that was being run out of the Four Seasons Hotel in Munich. And as we all know, he became head of the National Socialist German Workers' Party and the rest is history. But this was all born in World War I. This was the melting pot. This was the crucible in which all these various ideas of nationalism, of racism, of anti-Semitism, of anti-communism uh, was all melted together and, and formed into this new movement which became the Nazi party. So the genesis of the Nazi party in Germany took place in the middle of combat between Marxist revolutionaries and uh, forces of fascism or reaction such as the Freikorps, the early Nazi party, the Tula Gesellschaft, and uh, related uh, institutions. Uh, Peter, before we swing back over to Europe. Now, what was taking place 
in the United States at the same time. Of course, the U.S. entered into World War I near the end of the combat. If you would discuss for us how the Bolshevik Revolution, how the effect of worldwide ideological Marxism and revolution, and also things like immigration from Europe, in particular Catholic immigration from Ireland and Italy, and Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe, and the doctrine of eugenics, all combined to have a powerful effect on the American power elite. Perhaps I know that's quite a mouthful, but how did these things affect the political outlook in the U.S. in the 1920s, even before the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt. We'll get to that later on. Well, certainly. I mean, the effect of all this sudden European immigration, which was taking place in some cases as a result of World War I, in some cases prior to the war, uh, had the effect of dislocating large segments of American society. You had uh, Irish and Italian immigration, which was largely Roman Catholic, immigration to the United States, and there was a strong uh, white Anglo-Saxon movement, of course, the Ku Klux Klan being the most obvious uh, element of it, and as we all know, I believe, the Klan was extremely powerful in this period, in the years just before, leading up to World War I and just after. You had a very strong white nationalist movement that was white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant. The influx of Catholic immigration was a threat to the Klan. It was a threat to the hegemony you might say, of the white Anglo-Saxon infrastructure. So they saw Catholic immigration as being extremely dangerous and upsetting the apple cart. But as they were fighting against Catholic immigration, then suddenly in the 1920s, you had a large influx, a beginning of Jewish immigration to the United States, which, of course, ramped up considerably by the, by the 1930s. So when you had Jewish immigration coming in, this was a threat to both the Catholics and the Protestants. So suddenly you had an uneasy alliance being formed between Christian Catholics and Christian Protestants against the, the non-Christian Jewish uh, influx. The broadsides that were being printed at the time, and the, the, uh, the flyers that were being printed, show that there was this concept that was held very strongly, that the Jews who were coming in were being assisted by Jews who were already in the United States, who owned businesses, who owned banks, according to the conspiracy theory. They owned corporations. And what they were doing was firing non-Jewish personnel from their offices, from their banks, from their stores, and hiring the recent Jewish immigrants. This was a kind of blood libel, you might say, for the 20th century that was being circulated in the United States, that instead of the Jewish people uh, sacrificing Christian babies, they were instead sacrificing Christian jobs. So you had this uh, idea that communism, as we go along into the war, World War I and the aftermath, that communism was a Jewish creation. Karl Marx, after all, was Jewish. And one of the battle cries of the Nazis and the others concerned the fact that communism was synonymous with Judaism, with being Jewish. And if you were anti-Semitic, then you were obviously anti-communist as well. There was this pairing of the two ideas of communism and Judaism, which is only valid insofar that Karl Marx was uh, Jewish. However, Karl Marx was most famously what you might call a self-hating Jew, his famous article on the Judenfrage, the Jewish question, was a vicious attack on Jewish banks, on Jewish institutions, and even on the idea of human rights. Karl Marx saw human rights as a quote-unquote Jewish invention, that the Jews had invented this idea of human rights to protect themselves, that it was strictly a selfish creation. Uh, so Karl Marx was not uh, promoting Zionism but by any means. He was not promoting Judaism. He was actually against all of that, and he wanted 
you know, basically what he claimed, a worker's paradise, something that would overthrow capitalism completely. And he saw the Jews as being the ultimate capitalists. So there's a, you know, there's a disconnect between what Marx had actually written and what people thought about Marx and Marxism and communism. They believed this was a Jewish conspiracy. So communism was a Jewish conspiracy, according to the story. So the, uh, the czarist monarchy in Russia fell because it was a as a result of a Jewish conspiracy. The Tsar was murdered in his family because of a Jewish conspiracy, so on and so forth. So suddenly you had one of the largest countries in the world, Russia, had become overnight communist nation and was consolidating its power all the way into Asia, was forming relationships with the, uh, with the Middle East, the Central Asian uh, com- uh, countries, trying to form this huge block of an atheistic type of uh, social and economic program. This scared everyone to death in the United States. Suddenly... They saw communists everywhere. They saw Jews and communists everywhere. They were being threatened by all of this. And so you had the rise of uh, very vocal opponents of this in some of the most unlikely places. You had, of course, Father Coughlin, the Roman Catholic priest, a radio personality who was on constantly railing against communism and and the influx of of Jewish ideas into the United States. You had, uh, of course, we all know about Charles Lindbergh. We know about Henry Ford. All of this pushback from from uh, financiers, people who had a lot of money at stake, who saw communism as being a threat to them, especially because of the rise of the labor unions in the United States. These seem to be socialist or communist-inspired organizations, giving power to the workers, and this was a major threat uh, to the industrial giants in the United States, just as it was to the industrial giants in Germany and in the rest of Europe. Hitler would never have come to power had it not been for the tremendous financial backing he got from corporate Germany as well as corporate America. So communism, Judaism, all of this was wrapped into this one big banner of uh, the sort of black flag of evil that was threatening the entire world, and it galvanized the opposition in the United States. There is another uh, ideological flavor, to coin a term, that was mixed into this particular recipe. Uh, You write in the Hitler legacy of the effect of Charles Darwin's theories on evolution and how those came to be seen by social thinkers, both uh, within the Nazi movement per se in Germany and also uh, ideological fellow travelers, so to speak, in, uh, the, in the United Kingdom and in the U.S. How does Darwin and the concept of eugenics uh, fit into this uh, scenario? Well, eugenics actually gave the scientific, um, quote-unquote scientific um, vindication or justification for what was really an ideological conflict. Uh, Darwin, as, as we all know, uh, became famous for suggesting that there was a, such a thing as evolution. And uh, what was taken from uh, evolution and survival of the fittest and all of these concepts that were being bandied about without anyone actually doing the reading was the idea that there were races that were more further evolved along the evolutionary path than others. This was a major component not only of scientific thinking of that time in the United States as well as in Europe. Uh, and remember, Germany, uh, at the time that this was all being uh, developed, was at the forefront of science and learning. Germ- Germany was the beacon for scientific uh, theory, for scientific method. Uh, people sort of slavishly followed what was happening in Germany. So you had this idea that not only were races that could be divided in terms of their position on the evolutionary path, shall we say, but there was a spiritual aspect to Darwinism as well. 
And this is what the Nazi party in particular latched on to. And it kind of infected other eugenics and racial movements uh, in other parts of the world. And this was something represented by Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, who created the Theosophical Society and who wrote uh, Isis Unveiled and the Secret Doctrine, very influential works at the time in the late 19th century. She posited the idea that certain races were perhaps more spiritually advanced than others as well, and that uh, humanity was proceeding along an evolutionary path. They were uh, becoming more and more spiritually aware, more spiritually powerful. But this got mixed in with some of the other racial theories of the day so that it was assumed that those races that were not spiritually advanced were the same as the races that were not advanced along the evolutionary path. That meant to the eugenicist that if evolution was in fact true, scientifically speaking, then it stood to reason that since we had discovered this fact of evolution, we could interfere with it. We could get involved in evolution. We could tinker with the process and maybe speed up the evolutionary process to the point where the new man, quote-unquote, would make itself manifest. And in order to tinker with the system, we had to get rid of those parts of the evolutionary uh, uh, pack that were considered to be deleterious to the, the creation of this new man, the creation of the next step in evolution. And of course, that opened the door to a lot of ideas about racism, about getting rid of those who were mentally infirm, physically infirm. Again, what is the baseline for this? What measurement, what metric are we going to use to determine what is or what is not uh, mentally undesirable, physically undesirable? And once we started with that, we had the German concept of the useless eaters, those who contributed nothing to uh, the human race from the point of view of the Germans. Therefore, the old people could also be killed, and they were. The mentally retarded, the uh, physically infirm in other ways. All of these people were not contributing to society. They were holding back the progress of the race, holding back evolution. They had to be first sterilized in many cases, very horribly sterilized, forcibly sterilized, so they could not reproduce. And then the next step after that was their destruction. So this idea was uh, championed in the United States as well. We had many people who were very strong advocates of eugenics, which was this race science of cleaning up the race, getting rid of people who were not contributing towards the, the racial uh, ideal that we had for ourselves. So we had laws against people having certain disabilities or certain uh, mental or physical handicaps marrying and producing children. There was forced sterilization of the mentally retarded. We had operations uh, like the Tuskegee syphilis uh, experiment that went on for decades in which we basically were providing a kind of genocidal experiment against black men in the South. We had all sorts of rules against who could or could not have children. The races could not mix. Black people and white people were forbidden to marry in many states. Uh, white people and Filipinos, for some reason, in several states, were uh, that was off the books. You could not marry. You could not marry Asians. So this kind of idea that we had to keep the white race pure above all else was extremely important. And this, of course, eventually led to the Holocaust as we know it, because the Jews were considered to be spiritually inferior. They had created communism. They had created socialism. They were responsible for the, uh, the Russian Revolution etc., 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 and they go to go back to the old story, they were the Christ killers, according to the theory. So all of this meant that the Jewish people were doomed uh, to extinction, and after the Jews, of course, the Slavs, black people, African-Americans, Africans in general, Asians, etc., etc. In 1929, of course, the stock market collapsed. Uh, the speculative boom of the 1920s ended. The Great Depression began, and after a few years of futility, 
by Herbert Hoover and his what is now known as Austerity. Franklin Delano Roosevelt came to power, of course, and they elected in 1932, and he then implemented the New Deal, including uh, many pieces of social legislation that we take for granted today, such as Social Security. Uh, how did the elements and the ideal, how were the uh, political elements and the ideological elements that you have already outlined for us, affected both by the Great Depression and by Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal? Well, there, there are other piece. The Great Depression seemed to be proof that the suspected worldwide conspiracy of Jews and communists against capitalism was actually taking effect. It looked as though this was actually happening. It was happening right in front of us. Poor people were being thrown out on the street. Rich people, in some cases, were losing everything. And it was all due to this massive global conspiracy that was understood to be taking place. The reaction against it was severe. Roosevelt came out and decided to create a lot of social programs. And it was viewed that this was exactly what the communists wanted to have happen. They wanted these social programs put in place. They wanted to move the United States closer and closer to a communist or socialist ideal. And instead of seeing Roosevelt's uh, programs as being what was going to save American capitalism from certain defeat, they saw it instead as a step closer towards a communist tyranny. And newspaper articles, uh, broadsides, flyers published at the time called Franklin Roosevelt a crypto-Jew or a Jew. They blamed him. They said he was hiring Jews for his cabinet. They were putting Jews in positions of, of prominence and importance in government and in industry. They saw um, Roosevelt as a communist, and they saw him as a dictator. Um, they called him basically all the names that uh, are being directed towards Obama today, if I could just make that comparison, because it stood out to me. When I started reading the, uh, the articles that were being printed in the 1930s in the United States, it seemed all you had to do was change a few words and you had pretty much the same reaction. Uh, Roosevelt was considered a dictator. He was considered a socialist, a communist, and a Jew. Uh, basically everything that, that you could think of to frighten a middle-class white American uh, male was put into these descriptions. These were all the, the, the code words um, for the fact that they felt that Roosevelt was handing the country over to the communists. So this was a major, major problem, and you had people on the extreme right uh, in the United States who saw this as being true. You had people like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh and some of the others uh, who were dead set against the New Deal. Uh, they thought this was a really bad idea. The fact that there were a lot of poor people out of work and homeless was not really their problem. Uh, the American uh, dream, of course, that everyone should work hard and become rich on their own uh, by their own uh, efforts, and to have the government bail them out was considered uh, very wrong, wrong-headed, and was a step in the direction of the Soviet Union. Um, so all of this was taking place in the 1930s. Roosevelt was seen as a major uh, opponent of all things American. He was considered to be an anti-American president, and there were numerous attempts on his life. There were numerous assassination attempts, uh, including some by um, Nazis, uh, actually, in the United States, the Nazi uh, plots that were revealed later, uh, there were all kinds of attempts on his life, and uh, he had to undergo a great deal of opposition, uh, some of it open from the extreme right and some of it sort of uh, under masquerade from moderates uh, on the Republican Party. But there was still this idea that Roosevelt did not speak for Americans. Uh, he was representing a kind of internationalist idea of what America was, and that was considered to be a real problem. And... Uh, he was mightily opposed by the right. 
Uh, before uh, I, I'd like to further explore some of the nomenclature of the fifth column in uh, the U.S. Uh, before doing that, though, a, a point that you made that I think would be worth underscoring here, and that is that uh, a an element of reactionary politics that one sees, just as there is a similarity, and I think you're spot on with your comparison of debating of Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a Jew or a Marxist. In fact, he was neither. Uh, is, is very similar to the way that Obama has been baited as a Muslim and a socialist. And uh, both men were therefore uh, seen as traitors because of that. You also noted that both today and in the 1930s, the uh, forces of political reaction were motivated to an extent by uh, an illusion of a simpler time, a happier time to which we could return, sort of a, a political atavism. I wonder if you would develop that for us. Um, it is a hallmark, I think, of um, a certain type of political idea, a kind of, uh, we may call it fascism or nationalism, that says, in uh, some time in the past, uh, the world was uh, was paradise. In elo tempora, as they as they call it in anthropology and, and history of religion circles, in that time, in that in that era, the golden age, and I think there was a lot of that. Uh, this this kind of mystification of the past, of a glorious past, which of course we all know never really existed. But it's the idea that there was a paradise before there were waves of Italian immigration, Irish immigration, Jewish immigration, before there was communism, before the Soviet, uh, before Russia fell. Uh, to the Soviet uh, 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 Bolshevik uh, revolution. So there was this idea that before all these things happened, everything was just fine. Everything was great. Of course, it was hideous for many people in those countries. It was hideous in the United States for people who were black, uh, for people who were uh, not wealthy, people who didn't have jobs, people who were on the outs anyway. Their, their, their lifestyle was, was horrible. It was the same in Europe. Uh, it was the same certainly in Russia where the peasants had suffered a great deal under the czars. So you had this idea that, you know, if we just would roll back the clock, we could go back to a happier, uh, nicer, freer time when everyone was happy and, uh, you know, there were strawberries and cream for everyone. Um, but of course, that wasn't so, but this is something that is a motivating factor, uh, not only in those days, not only in the 1930s, uh, but it is today as well. You find a lot of people longing for a time, probably in the 1950s, um, where everything seemed to be fine, everything seemed to be okay. It was the rise of the middle class in the 1950s, uh, a middle class that really didn't exist until World War II in any great numbers. And suddenly there was a middle class, and now the middle class is threatened again. So you have uh, a large segment of the population thinking it would be nice to go back to that time. But you can't go back to that time without going back to everything in that time and without giving up everything you've accomplished in this time. But people who... Um, idealize that, that era, uh, don't understand it. They haven't really uh, remembered what was really going on in those days. And uh, they have a, a rosy view uh, where all of the negativity was suppressed and, and repressed, and they just, can, they just think of things you know, as being just, uh, just sweet and wonderful. And, of course, it just wasn't, it, wasn't this, it wasn't so. The Nazi Party grew on the basis of this idea. I mean, it, it, uh, it was a longing for that time, that idyllic time when it was before the Industrial Revolution. The Nazis hated the Industrial Revolution. They hated the cities. 
They longed to go back to the countryside. They longed to be peasants and farmers again. They wanted the, uh, the, their young people to go out and uh, to wander the fields and to get in touch with nature. It was a, a kind of green movement, you might say, uh, at that time. There was this idea that, you know, what happened, we, we've gone astray. We've let uh, the Jews into the, uh, into, the, into the world, into our country, and they've manipulated everything and ruined everything. We've let uh, international uh, corporations uh, get involved in our, in our lives and in our country, and they've ruined everything, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted to go back to a time even before Christianity. They wanted to go to a time when the Teutonic and the Nordic gods were all that they knew, uh, a time that was considered to be full of uh, manliness and uh, glory and warfare, for the for the sake and for the glory of warfare. So these are these are romantic ideas based on myths that have very little relationship to what actually happened. But because people were so dissatisfied with their present life, they were incapable of envisioning a future that they could improve. They were incapable of, of thinking that maybe they could take what they had today and make it better tomorrow. Instead, it was much easier to look backwards and to sigh and to think, wouldn't it be better if we could go back to the past? Uh, we have spoken, you spoke about American industrialists who uh, supported fascism for its anti-communist, and in the case of Nazism, its anti-Semitic and pro-eugenics uh, viewpoint. We talked uh, both earlier in this interview and in the past about Companies like IBM General Motors, uh, the Ford Motor Company, of course, George Herbert Walker, and Prescott Bush Sr. were involved with uh, Nazi industry. You made a point I was not aware of, that Standard Oil, the Rockefeller Company, was originally a German firm. I wonder if you would uh, develop that for us briefly. Uh, yes, certainly. Yes, Standard Oil was originally German. In fact, um, one of the things that I came across in a in, a, in research for a previous book called Ratline, was the involvement of a, a person called Emil uh, Hilfrich. Um, I'm mispronouncing his name sort of deliberately, so you'd be able to look it up. Um, Hilfrich was a, um, a German uh, financier and a German industrialist who wound up in Indonesia for a long period of time. He was running tea plantations and, and that sort of thing there. But he was a very prominent member of the, uh, the Friends of Himmler, of the Himmler Circle. Uh, he was a person who was extremely involved in helping to set up the Third Reich and financing Hitler. He was one of the major names uh, of that initial group of people who signed a letter demanding that Hitler be named Chancellor of Germany. And he was, at that time, also the head of the German version of what would become Standard Oil. Standard Oil was originally a, a German company. Um, it was a, a German firm. It had been doing oil uh, exploration in the Middle East. And it became Americanized, you might say, into Standard Oil around the time of the Second World War and after. But before that, it was a German company. What we don't realize is that there were over 750 German companies and subsidiaries that uh, were spread throughout the world around the time of World War II or the Second World War. And that after the war was over, many of these companies still existed. They were the infrastructure that would give birth to a German renaissance, to uh, the German powerhouse, economic and financial powerhouse that it is today. But even more importantly, it, re it represented the tendrils of what would become a network uh, around the world to help Nazi war criminals and Nazi money and Nazi uh, financiers escape and set up overseas operations. Companies like AEG, uh, of course, uh, IT&T had a very strong Nazi uh, presence. 
um, the head of the German Secret Service at one point, was also on the board of IT&T during the war in Germany, and we could go on and on. Um, but yes, this is absolutely true. Standard Oil was initially a German firm. Uh, the fascist movement in America uh, is among the topics that you cover. Uh, some of the names and institutions I'd like to uh, briefly touch on. William Dudley Pelly and the Silver Shirts. Tell us about them. <laughs> well, William Dudley Pelly is a very interesting uh, character. He um, he had some sort of a uh, uh, Saul on the road to Damascus moment where he became suddenly enlightened, uh, spiritually uh, enlightened somehow, and became a kind of mystic and a Nazi all rolled into one. A uh, Nazi and a mystic and a ufologist as well. So William Dudley Pelly created something called what we call uh, the Silver Shirts. Uh, it was a legion, the Silver Legion, that was patterned after uh, Mussolini's black shirts and Nazi Germany's brown shirts. It was an American version called the Silver Shirts. William Dudley Pelly was, like I say, a mystic. He wrote a lot of very long and involved mystical works. He was obsessed with the pyramids of Egypt and uh, seeing in the pyramids a kind of code that you could use to determine the future. Pelly was um, very much involved with the Nazi underground, with the Bund, the German-American Bund. He was involved with all of the characters, all of the major personalities of the pre-World War II uh, German underground, and then later with the, the, um, the German underground that existed during and after the war. Pelly um, was trying to create an organization that would be the American, cleaned-up sort of American version of the Nazi Party. He wanted a Nazi Party in the United States that would appeal to non-Germans. He wanted to appeal to the, uh, the rest of the white people living in the United States, who maybe might have been uncomfortable with the German-American Bund, but could get behind something like uh, his Silver Legion. Uh, it was a very strange operation, and one of the things that struck me about Pelly was that, based on his calculations of the Great Pyramid, he believed that there would be a second coming in the United States. It would take place in the United States, and it would take place um, to restore uh, America's role in the world, restore the role of white people. It would destroy... Uh, the American uh, capitalist system and replace it with a more um, congenial fascist or Nazi system. And he uh, claimed it would happen on September 18, 2001. Uh, he had actually predicted that there would be this major conflagration and that Jesus would reappear in September 2001. Um, it's a very strange uh, prophecy to make back in the 1930s when he made it. Um, if we compare his prediction with another fascist at the time, uh, Bessie Burchett, who was a very active um, fascist, anti-Semitic, uh, trying to clean up the school system, get rid of the Jews out of the schools, get rid of the Jews uh, out of the Board of Education, um, et cetera, et cetera, a very violent, very uh, active uh, person uh, in anti-Semitic circles and in uh, pro-fascist circles. She at one point uh, said that what Hitler should come and do uh, to help the United States be to fly some planes into the uh, the tower, into the Empire State Building. At that time, there was no World Trade Center. Uh, into Manhattan, the skyscraper, she said, full of Jews. Uh, both of these statements were made in the same year. I think it was 1935, if I'm not mistaken. So both William Dudley Pelly and Bessie Burchett, his uh, associate, were basically seeing in advance what was going to happen in 2001. Um, they had uh, prefigured it. They wanted it to happen. They wanted the United States to fall to its knees 
at least the the, uh, the so-called Jewish communist socialist uh, dictatorship aspect of it, so that white people could regain control of the country. Um, and that was their idea. It was William Dudley Pelly um, firmly believed in this idea. So did uh, most of the fascist groups in the United States. Uh, as Philip Jenkins pointed out, an historian of the period, uh, at that time, in the 1930s, there were 120 fascist organizations in America, and that was not counting the ethnic groups. In other words, not counting the Ukrainian fascists, of which there were many, the Russian fascists, the Romanians, the Hungarians. There were so many Eastern European fascist groups, and Jenkins was not including them in his list of 120 native fascist organizations in the U.S. This was a tremendous um, how shall I put it, a tremendous bank upon which fascism would draw not only during the 1930s and 1940s, but continuously uh, in the decades since then. Of course, right-wing politics today are being driven by a number of right-wing radio talk show hosts on radio and television. That also has uh, some comparisons with what was taking place in the U.S. in the 1930s. Uh, you made a brief allusion to Father Charles Coughlin, the so-called radio priest. If you would tell us more about him and some of his affiliations. Well, Coughlin's an interesting guy. I mean, Coughlin was, um, you know, he, he created essentially the idea of the radio talk show that was being used for political uh, purposes, political agendas. He was the Rush Limbaugh of his day, uh, a Catholic, which was a, a major development because until that point, Catholics were considered part of the problem. But Coughlin, being a violent anti-Semite uh, and anti-communist, came out very strongly. Uh, Father Coughlin was a Roman Catholic priest, uh, a suburb of Detroit. Uh, he had his uh, Shrine of the Little Flower, it was called. And at that shrine, at that church, you could get books such as the Protocols of Learned Elders of Zion, that famous hoax document that said the Jews had a conspiracy to take over the world. You could buy Mein Kampf there for a while. You could buy a lot of uh, fascist literature there. He was very pro-fascist because he was a Catholic and he saw communism as being atheistic and a threat to the world order. He saw the Jews as being part of that same problem. And he was extremely popular. On the face of it, he was just a radio personality making uh, thunderous uh, broadsides against uh, Franklin Roosevelt, against the New Deal, uh, against uh, all of the enemies that he, see, that he saw were enemies of the United States, his version of the United States. That was the face of it. But beneath the face of it, Coffin was actually involved in several plots to overthrow the country. He was involved in plots that involved Russian nationalists, uh, that involved uh, German uh, spies and saboteurs. There was a German spy... Um, who had knowledge of an, of a, an assassination attempt that was going to take place against the president, against Roosevelt. Uh, this particular German spy was also a priest, uh, not a Catholic priest. I believe he was uh, Russian Orthodox. Th this is he, uh, Mr. Pelipenko, correct? Pelipenko, yes. yes. The famous Pelipenko affair. In fact, you can look on the FBI's own website, uh, FBI.gov, and you can look up the Pelipenko uh, information. There's some of it there, not, not a lot of it, but there, there is some information on Pelipenko and von Siatsky and some of the other personalities that I talk about in, in Hitler legacy. Father Pelipenko was an interesting guy. He uh, was so deeply involved with the uh, German Secret Service that he knew details of plots all over the United States. He eventually came to the United States through South America. Uh, he went up to the U.S. and basically turned himself into the FBI. The FBI then used him to spy on people like Father Coughlin and some of the other uh, right-wing 
uh, rabble-rousers and, uh, and, and fifth columnists in the United States. And Pelipenko did a lot of very good work. He exposed plots. Uh, people were arrested because of Pelipenko's information. People were rounded up uh, in Texas. There were a number of spies who were trying to escape. There was one trying to escape in Mexico. Uh, a number of people were rounded up because of Pelipenko. He, he spoke the languages. He understood. Uh, he had excellent credentials as a member of the German Secret Service. Uh, Kaufman loved him. Uh, Colonel von Fiatsky, a Russian, white Russian nobleman from Connecticut, uh, who ran his own fascist party, was also involved in some of these plots. They were all uh, in bed together, you might say. Uh, and then eventually, of course, all of these plots were exposed because of Pelipenko. Um, he exposed the, the broad outlines of a coast-to-coast, um, nationwide Nazi underground that was taking place in the years just up to and including the war. Um, the problem is that once Pelipenko did all this work for the FBI, uh, they were going to uh, deport him because his visa had expired. Uh, this is how we treated somebody who had actually saved the life of the president. Um, since his visa had expired, they were going to deport him, but World War II had broken out. They could not deport him, so they threw him in jail for the duration of the war. Um, this is one of the sad uh, commentaries on how we handle things, I suppose. But Pelipenko had shown himself to be uh, a very valuable person in uncovering the Nazi underground. And we're, when we talk about Pelipenko, we talk about Father Coughlin, we talk about Onsiatsky and his uh, his Russian fascist uh, organization that wanted to restore the Tsarist monarchy in Russia. We talk about the white Russians, the uh, the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, which is one of my, my interests as well, going back all the way back to the 60s. Um, this was the church that uh, was swirling around the Harvey Oswald, George DeMar, and Schilt, and all the others. Um, a fascist, a very anti-communist church, uh, and so on and so forth. You uncover just so much when you talk about Father Coughlin and Pelipenko and all the people around at that time. And uh, one of the uh, points you make is that some of the uh, part of the fascist conspiratorial milieu that Pelopenko exposed were Ukrainian fascists allied with the Third Reich, some of whom are some of the forebears of some of the more, uh, some of the riper elements that we've been seeing in uh, Ukraine following the Maidan. Uh, the events that took place uh, during and after uh, World War One also are central to an understanding of what was taking place in the Middle East. And I've I've included in the description to the show another excerpt from page 73. I think in the interests of time, we may want to uh, move directly into a discussion of, again, what was happening prior to and during the First World War, but this in the Middle East. Of course, we have heard all about... uh, Islamic jihadism and so forth. It is one of the major uh, topics of, uh, well, discussion. It's one of the major elements in the news today with things like al-Qaeda and ISIS and so forth. And in your book, you have uh, a chapter on the origin of global jihad, and it takes place, uh, that, that genesis takes place not with some Muslim cleric uh, in uh, some place in Eurasia, but with a German nobleman named Max von Oppenheim. Uh, tell us about Oppenheim and his formulation of jihad as a vehicle for the extension of uh, German colonialism and as proxy warriors in World War One. 
Yes, Max von Oppenheim was a uh, was an amateur archaeologist. In those days, many archaeologists were amateurs. He uh, lived in the Middle East for a long time. He lived in Egypt. He lived in North Africa. He was the sort of German counterpart to T.E. Lawrence, the famous Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he believed that he could win World War I for, the, for Germany. If Germany used a clever idea that he had come up with, he said, let's go to the, to the head of the Ottoman Empire. Let's go to the Sultan himself. Let's go to Turkey. Get Turkey's um, cooperation with Germany against England and France and Russia. Russia at the time was still czarist. Let's go and uh, form an alliance with Turkey. And let's do it by telling the Ottoman Empire, by telling the Turks, by telling the Sultan, that he should come up with this concept of jihad, but global jihad. This should be a jihad of all Muslims against all of their colonial masters. Um, this was an idea that Max von Oppenheim himself had come up with. And oddly enough, his name was Oppenheim. He was a descendant of the famous Jewish banking firm, the Oppenheims. But his father had converted to Christianity for business reasons. So Max von Oppenheim was neither Christian nor Jew nor anything else, really. Um, he, he thought he understood Islam very well. He thought he understood the region very well. And he believed that the Muslims would rise up uh, against their, the English and the French if the sultan and the head of the, uh, the mufti of Turkey would come out with a statement that said, all Muslims are now honor-bound uh, to perform jihad against their, their enemies. So the idea of global jihad was not the creation of the Wahhabis, or the Salafis, or any of the uh, extreme uh, Islamic cults that grew up in the last uh, 200 years or so in the Middle East, the idea of global jihad, not jihad itself, but global jihad, was an invention of Germans. Uh, and it was a very cynical manipulation of religion. It was a cynical manipulation of relig religion in the service of, of politics. And Germany wanted to use this to get the uh, support of all the Arab tribes uh, in the Middle East, North Africa in the Middle East, because England was holding on to, to Egypt at the time. Italy had Libya and Ethiopia. There were all of these other foreign uh, colonial powers there that if uh, the Muslims in general had risen up in jihad against them, Germany felt that its, uh, its role in World War, II, World War I rather, would be much easier. Plus, you also had Muslims in Indonesia, what is now Indonesia, you had Muslims throughout the world and other parts of the world. If they could all be made to rise up against their colonial powers, it would shake the European powers to their core. Uh, India, uh, which is one of them, uh, would fall. If the English uh, suddenly had to fight a war in India, they couldn't really uh, prosecute a war in Europe against Germany, on and on and on. This was the grand global strategy, the idea to weaponize religion in the service of politics. Jihad was always a factor in Islam. Uh, but jihad was usually used uh, as a self-defense. If we're talking about jihad in the real world as opposed to spiritual, religious jihad, uh, jihad was uh, to be used in defense of Muslims. It was to be used to defend Muslim territory against invaders, so on and so forth. But it was on a case-by-case, -case, very individualized basis, localized basis. The idea of a global jihad that we're experiencing today has its roots in Germany with Max von Oppenheim and with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, of course, you made a, a brief reference to T.E. and Lawrence and his Arab Legion portrayed in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, if you would tell us about that, we're, we're low on time, but that, the Balfour Agreement, and then how were those affected by the Sykes 
Pico Treaty, and in turn is sort of a, a point of departure that we will uh, re-enter upon next week in a, another interview. How did this affect the Arab population of the Middle East at the end of World War One? Again, when the uh, the Arab the promises of the Arab Legion and the, how that they were betrayed, Sykes Pico. What effect did this have on uh, the Arab? Screech, so to speak, at the end of World War One. Well, this is a very fascinating moment in history, and it's the it's the 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 crucible for everything that's come on since then, everything that we've been experiencing since then. Uh, I love this part of history because it reveals exactly uh, what went wrong and how it went wrong. Uh, T. E. Lawrence, of course, was trying to raise uh, the Arab revolt against the Turks. The Turks had issued a fatwa saying that it was the duty of every Muslim to oppose the English and to oppose the French and the Russians, and to oppose all the quote-unquote crusaders, all the Christians, all the infidels. However, the Arab uh, tribes themselves were nowhere near united, and they know they did not accept the fatwa issued by the Ottoman Turks. They hated the Turks, quite frankly. They wanted their own independence. So this idea that they were ideologically motivated that they're still ideologically motivated is complete misdirection. This is something we should pay very close attention to in what's going on in the Middle East today. But before I get ahead of myself, I go back to what happened. Uh, Lawrence, of course, was had befriended Prince Faisal, uh, who was the, the Hashemite ruler of Mecca and Medina, the holy places of, of Islam. And they decided they would side with Lawrence, with the British and the French, against the Turks. So they rose up against the Turks. They fought them. Uh, there was another rebel leader called Ibn Saud. Ibn Saud was a Wahhabi, a fanatic. Prince Faisal was not. Faisal was a moderate. Saud was a fanatic. He also was taking British money uh, to fight against the Turks. It was strictly a, a business deal for Saud uh, more than it was for Faisal. Anyway, we have the Arab revolt. The, the Arabs entered Damascus uh, slightly ahead of Allenby. Uh, the whole World War I thing is over. The Turks have been defeated. Uh, the Arabs are now expecting that they were going to get their homelands and they would have liberation freedom and they'd be self-governing uh, uh, in an instant and of course that never happened. What happened was unbeknownst to, to many the British and the French had cut a deal with each other as to how they would cut up the Middle East once the Turks were removed from the area of, uh, of influence. So once the Ottoman Empire was defeated the British and the French got together a Mr. Sykes and a Mr. Pico a British uh, uh, civil servant as it says in the movie Lawrence of Arabia and a French civil servant they got together and they decided they were going to draw spheres of influence. There would be a French section of the Middle East and a British section of the Middle East. Um, and in the midst of all of that, there was something called the Balfour Declaration. Again, unbeknownst to most people, what happened was Lord Balfour of England decided in order to get Zionist support for the war against the Turks, he had to promise the Jews a homeland in Palestine. Well, some of this was broached to people like Prince Faisal, who was agreeable in, in a theory to this idea that the Jews would have a homeland. But Faisal's idea was that it would still be Arab land, but there would be a Jewish homeland within the Arab uh, uh, society, within the Arab uh, territory. Um, people made a lot of suggestions, a lot of promises to a lot of people. The British and the French were making promises everywhere in order to win the war. Uh, if you put together all of the letters, and all of the agreements that were sent and signed and agreed upon in the in the uh, months, weeks and months before the end of the war, you will see tremendous contradiction. They were lying to everyone. The British and the French were lying backwards and forwards. The British were promising everybody the moon. It's like the uh, 
that film, the producers were, you know, everybody gets 100% of the show, hoping the show is going to fail, but then when the show wins, everyone has to get paid 100%. It's impossible. They couldn't have given the Arabs everything they promised. Uh, Peter, we are almost out of time. I, I'd like to develop this point at greater length in our next interview, but uh, to sort of sum up and as a transition point to yes. next week, uh, the effect on the Arab streets, so to speak, uh, to an extent was what you call sort of the grand unified theory of Islamist terrorism. In the sense, perhaps that, that is overly glib on my part, but uh, there developed a sense of the people there being the victim of, again, a glo- an international global conspiracy. And we're going to see next week how this dovetails with some of the points of view that we have developed or that we're developing in Europe and North America. Can you encapsulate that for us? And we'll take that up next week. Yes, just briefly then. What happened was the Arabs on the street, as you say, the people living in Palestine, the people living in the Middle East, suddenly saw that maybe there was a global Jewish conspiracy, that maybe the protocols of Zion were correct, because after all, suddenly there was a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Uh, Prince Faisal, who was supposed to be the head of Mecca and Medina, was shipped off to Iraq. Everything was being split up by the British and the French. It seemed as though everything that they had heard, all of the of the wild theories of global conspiracy that they had heard, were actually coming true. And this is what started what we have today. This rise of anti-Western uh, movements within the Middle East is because of this perceived betrayal um, on behalf of the European powers against the Arab people. And in uh, future programs, we're going to see how the sort of a paranoid fascist worldview of a, an international global conspiracy as it affected people in North America and Europe came to dovetail with the view of a global conspiracy as it was felt by some people in, in the Middle East and how the tactic of using weaponized religion, both Islamic proxy warriors that we talked about briefly here and that we will talk about next week in connection with the Grand Mufti, and in weeks to come others, uh, the Dalai Lama, Zen Buddhism, and others, uh, how this concept of uh, religious proxy warriors with weaponized religion manifested itself in the Cold War and some of how that has affected us today. Peter, we are all out of time. I'd like to take up these topics, however, in some future interviews, plural. Uh, we have been speaking with Peter Lavenda, the author of, among other books, The Hitler Legacy, the book we're talking about now, subtitled The Nazi Cult in Diaspora, How It Was Organized, How It Was Funded, and Why It Remains a Threat to Global Security in the Age of Terrorism, published in hardcover by IBIS Press. This is, for the record, program number 838, interview number one with Peter Lavenda, the author of The Hitler Legacy. This is being recorded on March 8th of the year 2015. For Peter Lavenda, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.